Guys, before um, I ask you to open your Bibles, there's two, or actually there's three things that I want to do. First of all, uh, Scott said it earlier, uh, I, I can't um, emphasize it enough. You just can't imagine how much stuff is going on around here in these, um, in, in the summer. Uh, you know, the, the high schoolers are going to be leaving Tuesday to go to Colorado. That's just the beginning. But one of the, uh, the greatest demands, of course, <clears throat> made on, a con- on, our con- on the body here is Vacation Bible School. Demands, yes. Um, purposeful, oh my. Some 500 kids a, a day, um, a good fourth of them will be from under-resourced sections of our city, will be here and we get the chance to define and explain the gospel for five days. Gang, we are five teachers short of uh, filling the thing up. Those five teachers are sitting right here in this room. So uh, on your way out, let's um, get it ready and get going for a week where um, we, are, we are putting our kids within earshot of the gospel as well as countless others who will be among us. We hope to do that and do that well. Secondly, gang, um, I'm a big reader. You know, I've, I've called myself a paid reader and I do a lot of reading. And one of the things that I enjoy reading is books on the Civil War, but books on World War II as well. I just finished the work on World War II called The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich. I would encourage you to read it, and particularly you um, who are younger, who don't know what took place about 65 years ago, um, the, the great evil of Nazi Germany and, and Hitler, and, and the things that our country did for the Allies before we ever entered. I mean, we armed Stalin, and we armed Great Britain. And then we got in, um, of course, in 41. But the, um, there's been wars after that one, too. Ugly things. Korea and Vietnam and, and um, Gulf, the Gulf Wars, etc. But folks, surely, surely we are um, not so caught up in self-interest that we could allow ourselves to forget those who have served us in that way militarily. So if you are one of those, a veteran, uh, male, female, now, later, uh, in the past, would you please stand for a moment? Go ahead. That's it. <laughs> stay standing. Would you please stay? Stand up. No, no, no. Stand up. I'd like to pray for you. Don't sit down just yet. Let me pray for you. Our Father, we thank you for these men and women. We are grateful for um, the sacrifices that they made and the contributions they made so that this country could be mighty and strong and free, Uh, a place where the gospel can go forth, at least for now, without hindrance. So thank you, O God, for them. Might they never, ever believe Whereas others might forget, their church family will never forget. We're grateful for them, Lord, and we commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. (laughs) Now, uh, you know that once a month we get a chance to um, confess our faith together. Gang, um, the Apostles' Creed is not a creed that says it doesn't include everything that we believe. But it includes some of the heartbeat of the stuff. I mean, just the, the, 
the, the guts of the Christian system, ladies and gentlemen. There's a, there's a mouthful in, in, this, in, this, in this creed. And so once a month, we stand together and unite as we say, these are the things that we believe. Now, they're not in your bulletin today, but they will be on the screens. So would you stand with me as we uh, quote or confess our faith together? My brother and sister in Christ, what is it, for heaven's sakes, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Catholic Church. I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Now, guys, uh, grab your Bibles and open them to the book of Jeremiah, and let's continue our study of the book of Jeremiah. We're in chapter 24, and before I read it to you, I just want to hopefully whet your appetite, because I want to say, I want to make this one observation. Gang, the God that you're going to read about in this story, the God who is being described in this story, is a God that we would never invent. The God on display here is far too good for us to have ever dreamed of having a God like this. So keep that in mind as I read and as, we pre- as I preach, and maybe that'll become clearer to you. Follow now as I read from a book that's inerrant and infallible and inspired, uh, starting at verse 1 of chapter 24. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon had taken into exile from Jerusalem Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs the good figs very good and the bad figs very bad so bad that they cannot be eaten then the word of the lord came to me thus says the lord the god of israel like these good figs so i will regard as good the exiles from judah whom i have sent away from this place to the land of the chaldeans i will set my eyes on them for good and i will bring them back to this land i will build them up and not tear them down i will plant them and not uproot them I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. 
and I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. 597 B.C., it has been a disaster of a year for Judah. Um, Jehoiakim and Jeconiah are both gone. Zedekiah, the last and the weakest of the Jewish kings, is now on the throne. Babylon, about nine years earlier than this, had um, defeated Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish. And consequently, whatever hopes that Israel might have had for help from the south is now over. And so in 597, Nebuchadnezzar pays his first friendly visit to Jerusalem. And as a result of that first visit, there is the first captivity that takes place. Um, This is all described for you in 2 Kings 24 if you'd like to take a look at it. The Babylonians come to Jerusalem, with his, um, Nebuchadnezzar comes with his army, and he skims the cream off of the top of the Jewish society. They take all the Eagle Scouts. They're all gone. Um, 10,000 people, according to 2 uh, Kings 24, 10,000 people go into exile, including names like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, the name of Ezekiel, the prophet, which is next up in the Old Testament. 10,000 captives go into exile into, the, into Babylon. Now, during that time frame, God shows Jeremiah a vision. The vision is of two baskets of figs at the fruit stand by the temple where people were supposed to offer their first fruits. One basket of the figs smelled so bad and was rotten and could not be eaten, and yet the, the, um, the point that they were making by that basket of rotten figs was even worse than the smell. The basket of rotten figs was a symbol that something or someone was rotten in Israel. Well, now, who could that be? Well, I know. (laughs) Well, it's those poor exiles, all 10,000, those poor exiles that have been dragged off into Babylon. Not so fast. Guys, the vision that you is described in chapter 24 illustrates a promise of judgment against those who disobeyed God Way back in chapter 21, do you remember it? I preached it. I pointed it out to you when we were in chapter 21. It's verse 8. I called it a crisis of faith where God sets before Israel a, a way of life and a way of death. You remember it? And the way of life was to go into exile with Babylon. Surrender was their only hope of survival. The way of death was to remain in Jerusalem with Zedekiah, that puppet king of the Babylonians. 
God had determined to do that city harm and not good. The king of Babylon would destroy it eventually with fire. And whoever stayed behind in that city would die by sword or plague or famine. You see, the bad figs represented the people who stayed in Jerusalem. They thought they were the lucky ones. They thought that they would be safe in Jerusalem. But what God had told them to do was to go to Babylon and and don't stay there in Jerusalem. But they were unwilling to do that because they knew that that was going to involve suffering. And the irony of that is that once Nebuchadnezzar showed up in Jerusalem, they suffered far worse, uh, which is generally what happens when people disobey God. And as we know, once fruit is rotten, it stays rotten. Unless, you see, guys, there's another side to this story. There's another basket of figs, good figs. They are the ones who will go into exile. And these who go to exile, these exiles will receive nothing less than the chief blessing of the covenant. It's described in verse 7. I will give them a new heart to know. To know. Yada is the Hebrew term. And you remember what Jesus said, and this is eternal life that they might know. Well, we're going to come back to verse 7 because it's, uh, we'll, we'll come back to it in a second. But I didn't want you to miss the statements that are made in verses 5 and verses 6. Now, take a, uh, fix your eyes on verse 5. While I say this, guys, the official position of Grace Evangelical Church is that we believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of God's Word. You've heard that before. I mean, you've, you've stated it before. Oh, yeah, my church believes in the verbal, plenary um, inspiration of the Scriptures. Well, what did you just say with that, with that phrase? The verbal inspiration of Scripture. What does that mean? Does that mean we believe in all the verbs? No, ladies and gentlemen, it's from a Latin word, verbum, which means word. We believe that each word that's contained in this book was chosen by God the Spirit. That is, that each word is in there for a reason. I'm saying all this because I want to show you something in verse 5 which illustrates the verbal inspiration of the Scriptures. Look at verse 5, guys. It is, it is, look, he says, Like these good figs, so I will, look at that next word, regard as good. I'm not going to make them good. Oh, no. No, they're not good in and of themselves. No, no, no. I'm going to regard them as good. I'm going to consider them good. I'm going to reckon them good. Do you know what you're reading in verse 5, ladies and gentlemen? You're reading the doctrine of justification by faith alone. A doctrine that says that God reckons us good. He regards us as good. 
Not that we're good intrinsically. Oh, no. My being good is not based on my merits. It's that God regards me as being good. Folks, the Bible states clearly in Romans 3.11, there is none good. No, not one. Not one of us. And the media would have us believe that man is essentially good when the Apostle Paul states under the inspiration of the Spirit there's none good. And for my money, I'm going to take the Apostle Paul every time. But he is going to regard us as good. It's not a goodness that I produce. He regards me as good. But there's more. Verse 6. I will set my eyes on them for good and I will bring them back to this land. These exiles that go off into Babylon, God says, I'm going to preserve them. They're going to make it. Not because they're strong and mighty and intelligent. No, no. They're going to make it. Because I'm going to insert myself into their lives on their behalf. Guys, earlier I mentioned that among those those 10,000 exiles were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. Do you remember the stories in the book of Daniel? About Daniel and the lion's den, you know, shut the mouths of the lions, and they didn't eat up Daniel. Remember that? Well, how about the other story? Do you remember that one about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I love to say those words. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, those are the three guys that were thrown into the fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar said, I want to heat it up seven more times, you know. They got really hot in there. So they throw the three of them in. And um, Nebuchadnezzar, on a perch from a long way, looks into the the fiery furnace, and he says, hey, uh, uh, Mr. Assistant Guy, uh, how many people did we put in that fiery furnace? Well, your highness, we, uh, we put three in there. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, why is it that I see four? Why is there four in there? I'll tell you why there was a fourth in there. God inserted himself. They're going to make it. Because God is going to see to it that they do. My brother and sister in Christ, you're going to make it. But not because you're strong and mighty and better than anybody else. You're going to make it all the way to the end. All the way to the finish line. You're going to make it. Because God has promised you that he would insert himself on your behalf. We're going to make it. Because he who hath begun that good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. You're going to make it. Because I, says God, am going to see to it that you make it. 
But there's more. I called it the chief blessing of the covenant of grace. And it is. Did you see it? It's in verse 7. God says, I'm going to regard them as good. I'm going to intervene on their behalf so that they make it to the end. And I will give them a heart to know me. Guys, first of all, let me just discuss the heart thing. He doesn't say, I'm going to give them a new head. I'm going to give them a new brain. I'm going to give them a new intellect. Because we normally think of knowing things with the brain. But the text doesn't say, I'm going to give you a new brain. I'm going to give you a new heart because the real issue, ladies and gentlemen, is not the brain, it's the heart. You know, the non-Christian world likes to think that they're intelligent and they like to think that they've got rational and intellectual oppositions to God. The issue is not their brain. The issue is their heart. A heart that loves sin. And so what they want is a God who will let them get away with their sin or at least wink at it. But I'm going to give them a new heart. The thing that I cannot change by willing it so or, or, or grinding it out or, or uh, uh, making a New Year's resolution. I'm going to give them a new heart. Because the biggest need that Jimmy Young has is for a new heart. And if I'm ever going to have one, he must give it to me. You know, I said that the non-Christian world, they want a God that will let them get away with their sin. There's a, there's a great statement in Psalm 50. You might want to take a look at it later on. Psalm 50, verse 21, where God is speaking through the psalmist, and he says, they thought that I was a God like them. <laughs> well, because that's what I want, you know. I want a God who's like me. And then I can go on with my life just the way I want to. But this God is not like that. This God hates sin, and because he does, there are many who hate him because they hate sin, because he hates sin. You see, ladies and gentlemen, without this new heart, you remain rotten, no good. Oh, oh men can know God as some supreme being. Every time I hear somebody say something when they're referring to God and they say, oh, the, the man upstairs. Oh, you can know God like that. Satan knows him like that. But folks, this, this to know him is not about information. It's about intimacy. And to know him intimately <laughs> 
I need a new heart. And if I'm ever going to have one, He must give it to me. I don't grow it or produce it or manufacture it or pay for it. No, no. It is a work of pure and sovereign grace. And if I never get one, without that new heart, I will concoct a God just like me. You see, folks, without that new heart, men and women despise this God, this God of holiness. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that holiness is the great terror of the non-Christian. In fact, let me give you this, which, which I think is, I hope it's helpful. Here's a, here's a method by which you might examine your own soul. Just ask yourself this. Do I approve of the character of this God? especially His holiness. Does that character delight you? Well, if it does, ladies and gentlemen, I'll tell you why it does. Because He gave you a new heart to know Him. You know, one of the Psalms, there's 150 of those Psalms, as you know, but one of them, surely in the top 10 of the Psalms, is Psalm 103. We sing it around here, bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. You know, that's, that's Psalm 103, verse 1. But the, the little chorus goes, bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul, worship his holy name. And then the Psalm goes on to list some, certain things that are kindnesses of God, blessings of God, forgiveness, and he doesn't hold my iniquities against me, and he's done all these wonderful things for me. It seems to me that it would be much more true to the context if the psalmist would have written, bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul, and worship his gracious name, or worship his mighty name. But the psalmist knows better. He knows that the foremost characteristic of this God is that he is holy. And the psalmist says, I love it that this God is holy. Do you? Do you approve of the character of this God? Folks, God's main gift to us is a new heart so that we might know Him. 
let me say it one more time, Look at, looking at the text. I will give them. It is an act of pure, sovereign grace. I don't earn it. I don't work for it. I don't do penance for it. It is the chief blessing of the new covenant that he gives us a new heart. And it is that gift that enables me to exercise genuine saving faith. Now, just, just hopefully for a moment of clarity, just because I wonder if there's questions swirling in your mind. Gang, let me, let me quote you a text in the New Testament, 1 John 2, verse 3. 1 John 2, 3 says, By this we know that we have come to know Him. By this, what, what, what? By this we know that we have come to know him, comma. If we keep his commandments. Gang, the keeping of his commandments, the obedience in response to his commandments, is a proof that I know him. The keeping of the commandments is a proof that he gave me a new heart. The obedience doesn't earn that new heart. The obedience just proves that I've got one. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Now, guys, as I close, I want to I want to leave you something with, to ponder. It's very clear from Jeremiah twenty four that in this vision there are only two baskets, not three. There's not a basket of the obedient and the basket of the disobedient and the basket of the kind of sorta obedient. There are only two baskets. The obedient and the disobedient. One's good, one's rotten. And what I'm saying is, at this very moment, on this very day, you are one of those two. You are either one or you are the other. Guys, have you come to see obedience as beautiful and disobedience as rotten? Have you 
Have you come to see that a path of obedience is what you long for? You know, guys, I know that if you were to speak to your friends about this preacher boy and you were to to describe him, that is, if you were trying to describe me, the first thing that you would say about me, you, the first thing, you wouldn't say this first. You would say, oh, he's one of the most humble guys I've ever met. You wouldn't say that. And rightly so. Because I'm not. But I can tell you this much. Humility to me. He's beautiful. Have you come to see a path of obedience as beautiful even though there are imperfections in our obedience? Have you come to know This God, as he reveals himself in and through Jesus Christ. Because that is the only way to know him. Our Father, uh, when we consider these acts of grace that you have granted us freely a new heart and that you have inserted yourself so that we might make it and that you have regarded us as good. We recognize you to be a God that is far beyond anyone that we could ever have imagined. A God so good that he would save someone as undeserving as I. So Father, would you, would you open more eyes to see you in all of your saving beauty? Would you allow men to see you and all that you have done to accomplish salvation in us. What a great God you are. And we love obeying you. Forgive us that we are imperfect in our obedience. But for us, obedience is beautiful. Now, Father, if you've brought people in here today who have not yet met this Savior of ours, Might they see him in all of his saving beauty. And we ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.